Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we'll begin reading with verse 6. title of this message is A Christ-Centered Worldview. A Christ-Centered Worldview. Paul said, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. And see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority in him. You hear all these repetitions? In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. What's this? But the reality, however, is found in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that our thoughts our words, our actions, and everything about us, everything we do, we would run them through the filter of the life and ministry and words of Jesus because there are no words that match his. In Jesus' name, amen. Mahatma Gandhi is reported to have said on one occasion, he said, uh, I like your Christ. It's your Christians I don't like. He said, for your Christians are nothing like your Christ. Now, whether he said that or not is debated, uh, but the sentiment remains. Do we who follow Christ, who claim Christ, who profess Christ, do we look like Christ? Do we live like Christ? Do our words uh, reflect the attitude and the behavior of the Christ we follow? 
Since the first of the year, we've been uh, discussing worldview. And at our premise in all these messages, and this is the final one of, of these worldview messages, but at, our, at its base, we've said this, that a Christian should have a Christian worldview. That is, the lens through which we view and understand our world ought to be colored by our Christian faith. That is, if we're really serious about our Christian faith at all. But what is a Christian faith? And we've noted uh, several things about a Christian faith. First, it ought to be a biblical worldview. It ought to be based on Scripture. Second, it ought to be uh, from an eternal perspective. It ought to have an eternal worldview. A Christian worldview, third, should have, uh, be a humanitarian worldview. And then uh, two weeks ago, we said that a Christian worldview should be an ethical worldview. That is, it, it prioritizes what is right, doing and believing what is right. And all those things, of course, are true. I, w- I wouldn't have preached them if, if I didn't think they were true. But in each of these, there is a common denominator that must be acknowledged, must be recognized, and that is this. We must recognize the filter of Jesus in all of those four aspects of a Christian worldview. And so today, I want to walk us through how Jesus plays into this idea of these four different aspects of a Christian worldview. And the first thing I want to uh, say to us is that Jesus Christ is the filter through which we view the Bible. The first thing we said was that a Christian worldview ought to be a biblical worldview. That is, uh, we ought to believe, have a high view of Scripture, and that our thoughts, our words, and our actions ought to be filtered through the lens of the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. Well, how does Jesus play into that? Well, uh, I think it is important uh, that we do two or three things. First, it's important that we see how the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament. Because what we're going to see is they interpreted the Old Testament through Jesus. We'll see that in a moment. Second, it is also important how Jesus himself viewed the Old Testament scriptures, which were the only scriptures that they had at the time that he was alive. And then third, we need to see how Jesus applied the Old Testament scriptures. And in all three of those, how the New Testament writers viewed the Old Testament, how Jesus viewed the Old Testament, and how Jesus applied the Old Testament are going to surprise modern-day evangelical Christians. So, what's this? First, let's look at how the New Testament writers viewed the Old Testament scriptures. Now, we could look at a lot of examples, but I simply want to pull out two examples, both of them coming from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, it says this, when King Herod heard this, what did he hear? He heard that the king of the Jews was going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, or he was going to be born. So he says this, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah, the Christ, was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote a passage from the Old Testament. In verse 6 of Matthew 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Now, that's a quote from an Old Testament book. Now, if you do research on that, you're going to find that that is a quote from the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, almost reads identical to Matthew's version of it. It says this, but you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who shall be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. All right, that's what Micah says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, one of the the 12 minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. And so clearly, when Matthew has the chief priests quoting Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, what is, how does he look at it? He looks at it as that verse in the Old Testament applying to Jesus. He applies it to Jesus. So Micah 5.2 is one in which Matthew, as he looks at it, he interprets it or he understands it through the filter of Jesus. What was Micah meaning, Matthew is thinking? Matthew is thinking he's meaning that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. We're talking about how New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament And with that passage, we see that Matthew interpreted it through the filter of Jesus. But that's not the only one. Later in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, we read these verses. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. You remember this story. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And Matthew quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. And here's the quote. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, Jeremiah is writing those words sometime in the early Uh, 6th century, sometime around 586-585 BC, about 580 years before the birth of Jesus. And what Jeremiah is describing is, he's describing the devastation in the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Can you imagine everything that you ever knew being destroyed and you've got mothers weeping over their children who are no longer alive because they were killed in the, in the destruction. There are parents uh, that are, are grieving over other lost loved ones, the loss of uh, not only family members, but the loss of their homes, the loss of their town, and they're weeping. And Jeremiah says, says Rachel, which is... Uh, Rachel was not a literal name of a lady that he had in mind, but Rachel was a symbolic name for Israel or Judah. And he says, Rachel weeping for her children, for they are no more. So Jeremiah is writing about the destruction of Jerusalem and its aftermath. But how does Matthew understand it? How does Matthew filter it? He, in, he understands Jeremiah 31, 15 as being, once again, filtered through the lens of Jesus. He takes it, and although, yes, it was about the aftermath of, dest- of the destruction of Jerusalem, he applies it to the mothers in Bethlehem whose boys, two years and under, were executed, massacred by Herod in his attempt to kill Jesus. 
So what are we finding here? We're finding that New Testament writers viewed the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, which is exactly what I've been talking about. If we're to have a Christian worldview, it needs to be a biblical worldview, but a biblical worldview must be filtered through the lens of Jesus. Not only that, but how did Jesus view uh, the Old Testament? Well, we get a, a picture of this in Matthew chapter 5, verses, uh, beginning with verse 17. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says this. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, he says, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, a dotted I or a cross T, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that passage tell us? It tells us that Jesus had a high view of the Old Testament scriptures. He had a very high reverence, a high respect for the scriptures. So what we've seen so far in this biblical worldview is that New Testament writers filtered the Old Testament through Jesus and that Jesus himself had a high view of scripture. But what does that mean, that Jesus had a high view of scripture? Well, uh, not exactly what we may have guessed. Because if you go a little bit further into the Sermon on the Mount, you hear Jesus saying a series of things that that begin with this phrase. You have heard that it has been said, and then he'll mention something, and then he'll say, but I say to you. And he basically reinterprets something that they had been told from uh, the, the beginning of their lives. Well, what was it that they had been told? They had been told certain things from the Old Testament law. And we will see this. For instance, look at uh, verse number 33 of Matthew chapter uh, 5. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the, the vows that you have made. Where was that? It was in the Old Testament law. This was literal Old Testament. That's what it said. But he says in verse 34, but I tell you, do not swear at all. Do not make such a vow, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by the earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head for you can't make one hair white or black. Obviously, Jesus had never been to the hairstylist. What did he do? He quoted the Old Testament. He said, you've heard the Old Testament says this. Yes, that's true. But now I'm telling you this. And he changes it. Then in verse 38, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Where did, he, where did Jesus get that? Where did they hear it? They heard it from the Old Testament law. That's where they heard it. So you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 39. But I tell you. Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. You and I have a hard time with this. I have a hard time with this. I want to hit him back, don't you? Hello? Don't tell me you don't. I know you do. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And he goes on there. So basically, he quotes the Old Testament, and then he changes it. One more example, although there are several examples in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 43, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where did he get this? This was the teaching of the Old Testament. But I tell you, 
Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. So we're to have a biblical worldview, but it is to be filtered through Jesus. But boy, that is really muddy. It's muddy because we know where to filter the Old Testament and all the scriptures, the New Testament too, through the person of Jesus. But for those of us who, who would love to take everything in the Bible absolutely literally, and m- most of us would, there's a problem for us because that's not exactly the way that Jesus took all of it. And then in John chapter 8, we see how Jesus applied the Old Testament. You remember this story. Oh, Got to run. Jesus is out in the town, in the town square, and the uh, chief priest... The Pharisees and the Sadducees who didn't like each other, they teamed up and they found this woman who had been found committing adultery in the very act of adultery. They drag her out of the bed and they bring her to the town square and they throw her in front of Jesus and they said, all right, rabbi, here's what Moses in the Bible, in the Old Testament says, she is to be stoned to death. What do you say? And you remember the story. Jesus stoops down on the ground. He begins to doodle in the ground. We don't know what he said. But while he was there, he said, um, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And the Bible says that one by one, beginning with the oldest of the group down to the youngest, they dropped their stones and they turned around, they went away. And Jesus said to the woman, where are your accusers? She says, I don't have any. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, let me just say something here. Those religious guys, they were right. Moses did say she was to be stoned. They weren't completely right. Because the husband, or or not the husband, the man was supposed to be stoned as well. Moses said that anyone who commits adultery, if they're caught in the act, the, the woman and the man are to be stoned to death. So they were partly right. Yes, the woman was to be stoned to death, but also the man, they conveniently left him alone. So what does Jesus do? Did he, did Jesus take the Old Testament literally right there? Hello? Let me go ahead and answer that for those of you who really didn't want to answer it. No, he didn't. If he had been following the literal command of the scripture, he would have said, you're right, stoner. I love her, but stoner. But he didn't. What does that tell us? It tells us that we need to look at the entire scriptures, Old Testament as well as New Testament, through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is the filter through which we view the scriptures. Second, Jesus is the filter through which we view eternity. You remember I said not only does a Christian worldview need to be a biblical worldview, but it needs to have an an eternal worldview. That is, we who have a Christian worldview, we need to look at everything around us from the perspective of eternity. You remember the rope I had up here that day? Were y'all here that day? I had this rope, you know, I was holding it here and it went way out there and it went all the way around there and it disappeared behind the door. And there was a little spot about this long that was a different color. And I said, that's human history. And then there was a little bitty dot. And I said, that's where you are. And everything you're doing right now is just a little speck. You won't be here that long. And then, and then all you will have is eternity. We're going to be spending a whole lot more time in eternity than we do in this little block that is our life. And every decision we make right here and now 
that will affect eternity, we have just a little bit of time to make it. Eternal worldview. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and the last letters of the Hebrew, of, of the, uh, of the uh, uh, Greek alphabet. He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. And then a few verses later, Jesus says this. He says, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever and ever. Here's something about Jesus. There's never been a time when he wasn't existing. And there will never be a time when he doesn't exist. Which means that everything Jesus did, every decision he made, every word he said, every person he interacted with, he he acted in such a way as to be conscious that his actions impacted eternity. So you see, Jesus is the filter through which we view Eternity. Third, Jesus is the filter through which we view and love humanity. I said that a Christian worldview needed to be a humanitarian worldview. You remember that? Well, I'm going to tell you again since you don't remember it. In John chapter 3 and 4, Jesus has three encounters with three different people. The different social status of those three people is very interesting. In John chapter 3, the first 20 verses, he has an encounter with a fellow by the name of Nicodemus. John chapter 3 verse 1 tells us three things about Nicodemus. One, his name was Nicodemus, which by the way means victor over the people, which meant he was highly influential. Second, said he was a member of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most influential religious sect in Palestine during the first century. And third, he was a member of the ruling council, which meant he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the equivalent of our U.S. Supreme Court. So he was highly respected, highly influential, and more than likely, very wealthy. And verses 1 through 20 encompass uh, a, a conversation between, between Jesus and Nicodemus. And let me just sum up that whole conversation to say this. Jesus loved that man. Some people say Jesus doesn't love the wealthy. That is absolutely not true. Jesus loves the wealthy. He loves the rich. He may not like how the rich obtain their wealth, but he loves the wealth. He was very loving and kind to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was at the top of the social strata. The next person we find is over in the next chapter of John, John chapter four, and there's this woman. Unlike Nicodemus, we're not told this woman's name. Jesus met her at noon at at Jacob's well, which was in the middle of Samaria. She comes to get water at 12 noon. Most of the women came early in the morning or late in the evening in the cool of the day. She comes at 12 noon because she's a a woman of shame. She's had five husbands. She's been married five times, divorced five times. She's living with a man without being married to him. More than likely, uh, the reason that she had been married and divorced five times is because she was infertile, more than likely. Not because she was a slut, but because she was infertile. And the men would marry her, and then when she couldn't produce a child, they thought that she was cursed, and so they divorced her. That's the way it was. Now she's living with a man without being married. He's probably doing it for the benefits, let's just say. 
And so nobody likes her. Nobody speaks to her. She comes to the well. Jesus is talking with her. And uh, only eternity will reveal what her real name was. She was a Samaritan, which meant she was half Jewish, half Gentile, hated by everybody. She was a woman, which meant she was considered property. Women in that time were not allowed to testify in court. They were not allowed to vote. So she was a nobody. Nicodemus was a somebody. This woman was a nobody. And do you know Jesus loved that woman? He saved that woman. From that, from that well, she went home and she became one of the first gospel-preaching evangelists in the New Testament. Jesus loved her just like he loved Nicodemus. He was, Nicodemus was on the top strata. She was on the bottom strata. And then later in John chapter 4, there's this centurion, a Roman military officer who comes to Jesus. His son is, is uh, terminally ill. We don't know his name either. He wasn't as high on the strata as Nicodemus, but he wasn't a nobody. He was a somebody. We would say maybe he was middle class. And and he comes to Jesus. And the long story short is that Jesus healed that man's son. You have a Jew, a half Jew, half Gentile, total Gentile. You have an upper strata Nicodemus, a nobody Samaritan woman. You have a middle class military officer. You have three people who represent everybody possibly in existence, and Jesus loved each one of them equally. He didn't hate the people that everybody else hated. He did not just, just uh, do away with the people that were uh, uh, considered wealthy. He loved everybody. My point in bringing that up is that Jesus was the criterion through which we view humanity. And then finally, Jesus is the filter through which we evaluate what is ethical and right. Do you believe in truth? Do you believe in honesty? Do we as Christians believe in what is just? The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one, hear this, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus always did what was right. Now, I'm not here to suggest that you and I can duplicate everything Jesus is and was and did. We can't. But I will tell you this. That ought to be our goal. Our goal ought to be to do right because Jesus did right. Our goal ought to be to love people because Jesus loved people. Our goal ought to be to think eternally because Jesus thought eternally. Our goal ought to be to look at every single Bible passage as though we would stop and say, Jesus, how did you view it? And so really, it boils down to this, folks. Do we who believe in Jesus, do we believe in him enough and care about him enough that we want to have the same worldview that Jesus had? Even if that worldview might go totally against 
what so many people in our world today want to believe. But a harder question is this. If I'm not willing to view my world, to make decisions, to support things that Jesus would support, if I'm not willing to do that, am I really a Christ follower at all? Let's pray. Lord, give us new glasses. Glasses through which we can see our world the way you see our world. Help us to take off the glasses that we have worn for so long. Glasses through which we see things selfishly, blindly, twistedly. And help us to see the Bible through your eyes, other people through your eyes. Help us to see things eternally. Help us to do right, think right, believe right and support what's right. Because if we don't, Lord, we're done. In Jesus' name, amen.